As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. What a run of races MotoGP has had over the past four weeks. Aragon, Mategi and Buriram made up one of the toughest triple headers in recent times. But it's given us one of the closest MotoGP championships for decades as Fabio Quattararo has had Peco Bagnaia close down a staggering 79-point gap since the Saxon ring in the middle of June. Simon Patterson and Valentin Harunchi join me, Toby Moody, as we catch up on this MotoGP crescendo with Australia, Malaysia and Valencia still to go. 75 points remaining on the table. Thank you so much to Matt Beer for hosting last week. I did like your Petrucci stand-in stance. Top job, Matt. Simon, you wrote an article on the website about this season now essentially being three races long as this championship comes to a head. Our major contenders are only two points apart. Aspargaro, he's 20 points back. We'll get round to him in a minute. Now, you said last week that Quattararo is still your favourite for the title. He's my favourite too. Do you still think that a week down the road? Yeah, I think so. Um, we've actually, we've seen a bit of a strange week, I think, from uh, Fabio Cuadraro in that he's done something strange without doing anything. Um, he's normally the most prolific social media user on the MotoGP grid, and he's taken the bold step this week of deleting his social media presence. Um, he shut down his Instagram page, which to me, on the surface, signals someone that's under quite a bit of pressure. But I think at the same time, knowing Fabio, knowing how he operates, I think what we're actually seeing is someone that's focusing on the job at hand. Um, it, it feels knowing him like this is the removal of a distraction. This is him knowing that it's now or never and, and kind of single track mind for the next three weeks. Um, whether or not that's good enough, I don't know. Um, it's obviously going to take more than just uh, logging off Instagram to focus his mind and win a championship after a, a run of form that means he hasn't won a race since the Saxon ring in mid-June. Um, but I think he remains my favourite for now, but we'll know whether or not that's the, the case on Sunday evening after the this weekend's race at Phillip Island, because I think, quite simply, he has to beat Paco Bagnaia this weekend. There, there's no two ways about it. He has to beat Bagnaia this weekend, and if he doesn't, it's championship over. Now, Val, you said that Banyaya is still your favourite, but you quite rightly pointed out it's just one of those weird seasons. It's going to continue, isn't it? Yeah, ultimately, I think if, if, it's, if it plays out the normal way, then Fabio could achieve total zen, total nirvana, be completely cool and collected and do every lap the same, and it won't be enough uh, because the Ducatis are too good and they'll just kick him up and down the, the pit lane. All um, Philip Island maybe is a close one. All I think the Ducati will be better at Philip Island than we even expect, maybe. And I think the Ducati will be too far at Sepang and Valencia in normal conditions. And the problem in the wet is that we we saw that. I think the big differentiator is whether Banyaya will click in the wet because I think Banyaya's ceiling in the wet is higher than Fabio's. That's my feeling from what I've seen in the MotoGP so far. Like both of them could have 
a total stinker on any given day in the wet. But well, we saw that in Thailand. Didn't we saw we? that in Thailand from Fabio. We saw that in Mategi and in Indonesia from Banyaya. But I think even if Banyaya has like a, a nightmare, I'm not convinced Fabio will score enough points to really properly capitalize on it. But again, we'll see. It's it it, it could be absolute bananas nonsense. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think Quattararo will do it, but Yamaha, Ducati, and particularly Aprilia just might have to stop any long-term thinking as they go into a race weekend. Therefore, be quite reactive as the propensity of difficult weather conditions at the three upcoming circuits, of course, as we know, can be absolutely mad. Teams will have to have every scenario thought out and discussed before each day, each session and each run, each exit from the garage. Phillip Island, wind, cold, then sun, you get four seasons in, in one hour. Sepang, it can rain out of nowhere, and when it does, it just rains like the Bible, and you need to build an arc. A non-stop race is probably going to happen, or the bigger chance of it happening in Sepang. Who knows what the weather's going to do even tomorrow, let alone in 10 days' time. So they've got to work out when to come in at the right time. They've got to have people positioned around the circuit, radio contact, pit. Like They've got to think of all the scenarios. Valencia, the final race, cold tarmac, and pressure, mental pressure. Simon, you've touched on it. Mental pressure upon all of them, like the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. It's going to be immense. Now, Elisha Spargro is only 20 points back. If you look... At the closest Formula One title showdown for some years, we need to look back to 2007. With three races to go, it was Kimi Raikkonen way back in third from Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso. From a possible 30 points available, Kimi took 26 points in the last three Grand Prix. A third, a win, and a win. Now, if Alicia Spargaro does that, he'll take 66 points. Yeah. <laughs> But I keep coming back to what you say, Val. It's just one of those seasons. And what I said in the middle of the summer, it's just going to be one of those years. It's It might all be pie-in-the-sky stuff, but it happened in MotoGP as well back in, in 2006 with Valentino Rossi and Nicky Hayden and the crescendo when we came to Valencia. Anything can happen, and I think it's just going to be one of those. Pff, flip a coin. If there's a team and a rider who's best positioned to kind of be reactive and take advantage of the chaos. I think it probably is Aprilia and Espigaro. I think they're the ones who are, have less to lose, who can take more risks. Um, hell, 12 months ago, who expected them to be title contenders? No one. So exactly. that puts them in a better position, I think. Uh, and then you combine that with the fact that we went to Sepang testing earlier this year and the Aprilias blitzed the rest of the field. Um, yeah, I... I don't think that uh, Aleish is a title contender in the same breath as Bagnaia and Quattararo, but I think that he still has a real good dark horse chance. Uh, I don't. I don't really see Aleish winning the. If if two out of three is what it takes, Ella Raikkonen, I don't. I don't see that happening particularly. Um, if anything, from from where I'm standing, there's a better chance of all three races being wet and Jack Miller entering the title race by just being good in all of them while everyone else is, is no good. <laughs> but that's also just, a, a, like, again, a lot of things really have to align. But, you know, our priors are going to change immediately on Friday this weekend, then on Saturday, then on Sunday. It's going to be 15 other opportunities to evaluate our stance on, on who's the favorite. It's it's fun. It's, it's really fun. And it's, you know, it's <sighs> such a weird thought that just came to my mind is, I'm saying it's fun, so I'm, why am I not enjoying it this much? And obviously, we're about to talk about the quality of racing, but it's it's not that for me. It's I'm tired. It's it's been a lot of races, and I'm tired, and I feel for some reason I feel fatigued by this title race. And the same thing happened with F1 last year, but F1 was of course just very acrimonious and unpleasant, and endlessly, just endlessly, just way too long and controversial. And and this isn't that, but I'm still tired. But that, that might just be a personal thing. Well, let's hope it's not controversial like Abu Dhabi because I don't think we need that. Um, in fact, we don't. Um, but likewise, we don't need somebody else being knocked off and stewards and race no, direction and all that kind of stuff. Not. We don't definitely need that. Uh, I uh, I can see what you mean about being tired. You, 
you know, it's a long season. Uh, Simon's been traveling the world. It's it's even harder for Simon. But I'm loving it. I think it's great. I think it's just nuts. And I wouldn't want to be a factory Ducati person or a factory Yamaha person. I think the lack of sleep and the blood pressure would just be too much. So to, to lead quite nicely into what we're going to talk about next, actually, um, I agree with Val in that I'm not really enjoying it either, I think. Uh, and the reason for that is that this year's title race feels like this year's races. They've been super close, but they've not been, you know, it's almost like the, the, the lack of competition and the lack of overtaking in the races has, has been transposed in the title race as well, because we've had this like title race of two halves where Quadraro had a really strong start to the season and built up a big points lead. And then uh, Bagnaya has just won everything since. It's almost like, uh, you know, if you're to compare the, the season to a race, it's not somewhere where they're passing each other every lap. It's somewhere where someone is overtaken at the halfway point and is just clearing off into the distance. Um, yeah, I, I, I haven't enjoyed this championship race at all, which is weird. Maybe it's the lack of fairing to fairing Quattararo and Banyaya, like a Lorenzo and a Rossi and a. I think it's the lack of fairing to fairing anyone. Well, there is that, yeah. No, that's. Yeah. Might have hit the nail on the head there, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, if you're Aprilia, you, you want to be a bit more risk taking than go by the book. And. Um, that wing it factor might just do it because to bridge that 20 point gap for a Spargaro at the moment might seem too much but if you just throw a dice and you just get a double six then poof, all of a sudden you're in the game I mean three races ago who would have said that back, uh, the Quattro would have non-scored in two of the next three yeah eight points out of three races yeah, and here yeah, we are. yeah and here we are so the next three races will be even more manic. I cannot remember a fight back like Banyaya. Well, I mean, it, it, the stats say it themselves. No Ducati rider is on four on the trot. Yeah, and it, no, it's, it's, it's mathematically unprecedented. I think the Lorenzo Rossi thing of, of 15 was two times fewer the points or something like that. So it's, it's, it really is absolutely unprecedented. And it, it basically took the Quartararo Yamaha package cratering, a tri uh, being stuck in the pack, falling off, struggling in the wet. That's that's what it took. And and you know, to to contextualize how bad the start of the season was for Bagnaya, I think it'll also match the record. If he wins the title, it'll match the record for most DNFs in a title year, and yet win the title and and still win it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how bad his start to the season was. You know, that's this weird championship of two halves again that we've had it's been and honestly honestly he could get another one and still somehow win it, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah absolutely and still win the title absolutely yeah <laughs> that's just nuts isn't it what's the record yeah or are we gonna have to edit that in because he, he's he's matched yeah, but by whom oh there, there's like uh there's three or four guys have done it okay yeah but no one's yeah. no one's had five crashes in a season and one of them. okay so there's something to aim for paco and he's had five <laughs> Uh, and by the way, uh, Bastianini, 39, 39 points back, technically could do it, but... Yeah. Yes, yes. Pigs quite haven't taken off yet, but they are in departure zone. Okay, well, uh, yeah, there's a scenario for these last three Grand Prix, isn't there? My goodness me, what a, uh, what a run it's going to be for those last 75 points. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As we look forward to the finale to this 2022 MotoGP season, we're going to maybe look back on how the racing has been in MotoGP this year. Has it been any good? Uh, there's been all sorts of chitter-chatter on social media and people not maybe happy with the follow-the-leader nature of the races and the lack of fairing banging and wham bam thank you ma'am into the last corner lots of people blaming the aero lots of people blaming the technical devices many few convinced that world superbike is a much superior product right now um you've touched on it already guys so far in this chit chatter simon is the aero the friend of the engineers and the enemy of the fans yeah i think yeah plain and simple it is um, and I think we, we kind of understand why as well. So first of all, just to caveat what I'm about to say, I, I think it's hard to argue that the racing this year is as good as it ever has been in MotoGP. We're, we're not watching 2019 or 2018 where we, we had a championship that was dominated by Marc Marquez, but he didn't, it wasn't easy for him. Even if it, he made it look quite easy. he, he was maybe the best way to describe it is he was almost like he was at that level of comfort where he was able to do what Valentino Rossi was able to do at his Repsol Honda Pomp and, and battle for the fun of battling. Um, you know, we saw these awesome last lap duels with Andrea Davizioso, with Fabio Quattararo, with a few others that made great racing where they were overtaking each other multiple times, where they were stuffing it up the inside of each other, banging ferns in the way past, that's been completely absent this year. Um, I think the only couple of occasions we've had for that this year for a win has been effectively neutered by Ducati's quasi-team orders. So, in a, you know, as a result, we've, we have lost something. The reason for it um, is the arrow, in a way, the, the, the specific cause for it, I think, from, from speaking to people in the paddock and people who know better than me, we have a situation where for maybe the first time in history, bike development has made a huge jump forward in a very short spirit, period of time and has left behind tyre technology. Normally, the tyre technology is like the controlling factor. You build the bike to suit the tyre. You don't do the opposite. But with COVID, with this two-year hiatus, some development... And with Ducati in particular pumping so much money into aero and ride height devices all at one time, what it's meant is that we've left behind the tyre technology. We're now in a position where MotoGP bikes are overloading the front tyre pretty much all the time, especially if you're behind another bike in a pack. Uh, an overheating, overpressured front tyre means less sensitivity for the rider and less sensitivity for the rider means less confidence in making hard-breaking overtakes um, and, and getting past people. The long-term diagnosis of all of this as well isn't particularly promising because it is something that will be fixed. It's something that we know how to fix, but right now we can't fix it because we have so little testing and so much racing in a longer than ever 21 race calendar with sprint races every weekend that Michelin simply can't find the track time to develop a new tire. Um, they had originally speculated that it was going to be 2024 before they were able to bring a new front tire that they were comfortable with. I have heard some whispers this week that it's now 2025, which potentially means another two years of, of what we've got right now. Uh, I, you know, I should say, I, I said I was, I was slightly fatigued of the season of the title battle, but that shouldn't for me, that's not really hand in hand with the quality of racing because my observation is that it's been fine. Like, well, I, I don't think that on average, if you take the average race from this season, I don't think you'd call it 
bad necessarily. Like there's no, there's no absolute catastrophe that was going on again in F1 when they've introduced the higher downforce cars for uh, 17, 18. That was unwatchable. This is watchable. It's not World Superbikes, but that, you know, that happens sometimes. I just, I think back to 10 years ago when I was just getting into all of this stuff. And I remember holding the, like, and being really proud of the hipster position that World Superbikes is better than MotoGP. Because it was at that point, but the prestige wasn't there, and rightly so, because of the, you know, the respect, the relative budgets, the relative quality of the grids. But the races were better to watch and you could still very much make the argument that they are right now in world superbikes although i would also argue that maybe world superbikes is a a touch more predictable in terms of like we've had i'm just i'm just open this we've had 12 people lead laps this season eight people lead double digit laps that's that's pretty good i'm i I think a lot of motorsport championships would, would kill for that eight people double digit laps that's that's excellent um so, you know, again, the I like the results variance, for instance, quite a lot. And it's not like there's been a total moratorium and overtaking. It clearly doesn't come as easy anymore. And clearly there's a there's a problem uh in terms of following and in terms of people finding the opportunities, but there's there's still passing. And people say there's no passing at all. I think that's you know, we're getting away with ourselves a little bit. So yeah, it's it, it's a, again. This is not like an impassioned defense of arrow whatsoever. If I were to launch an impassioned defense of arrow, I'd say that I think there's maybe a, a belief that I can't really accurately assess that it makes riding safer and makes it less likely for riders to get chucked off their bikes into space, uh, which I like. I do not want to to see really bad crashes and really bad crashes in the pack. And if we have this for fewer crashes, I'm I'm on board with it reasonably so, but that's, you know, that's one for people with a degree. But yeah, no, that would be that would be my defense of Aero. My argument against Aero would be that, yeah, the racing clearly could be better. And my other argument against Aero would be that it's ugly. <laughs> it's really ugly. I don't think, I think we're not, we don't have the, the F1 type of thing where people see some garbage winglet on the, on the barge board and go like, wow, amazing innovation. Look at this piece of trash they stuck on this plastic abomination. I think as 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 a MotoGP public, there's a there's a you know you see some nonsense stuck on the rear the rear seat unit, and you go like, ew, and and that's the correct way to look at it. I I saw a photograph the other day of uh, I think the 2011 Yamaha of of uh, Lorenzo, and man, I just forgotten how beautiful and clean looking motorbike without aero is. It's yeah. just a gorgeous thing. Yeah. Um, but it also kind of highlighted the problem that the Japanese factories in particular are having with Aero because it also kind of looked like a Yamaha 500 Grand Prix bike in that it hadn't really changed that much in the course of 15 years leading up to there. Um, but, you know, it, it it's hard to look at the seat unit of the current Ducati with its stick-out Stegosaurus fins and think, yeah, that's cool. Like, it's just... <laughs> It has it has none of the at least the, the sort of the inherent beauty that I think a Formula One wing has. There's just nothing to it. It just looks hard. Yeah. It looks like yeah. something made by a primary school kid in art class to take home to a parent that wasn't particularly happy to get it. You know, uh, I mean, uh, you know, as as you say, I think I'm also of the opinion that a top line machine should have a sort of streamlined quality to its. Like everything should be like combined and flowing. There should be no sharp 90 degree things sticking out. That's it. You know, I brought up the, the Stegosaurus thing because it's just, you know, at the top of my head. But actually, I think that's on, on the ugliness scale, that's relatively fine compared to the absolute horror that goes on at the front of the bikes. All those cascading bits of whatever nonsense that, you know, fly off sometimes and litter the track. Uh <laughs> It's not a very not a very analytical or scientific way to look at things. Just basically go, ew, I don't like this. This is not nice to look at. But at the same time, you know, we look back at the the F1 cars of 2012 and 2014 with their disgusting cascading noses or sticking out things, like absolutely phenomenally gross. And I wonder if one day in MotoGP we'll also look back at these things and go like, what was going on there? Was n- How many people will look back fondly at, at this? No one. Sort of, yeah, Christmas tree stuff on the front. Yeah. But it's going to take somebody with 
knowledge of aero and such like to say stop and they're gonna have to give enough notice for them to to make a package without aero and such like in the defense of aero the people who would say that not necessarily me are the engineers it is a prototype championship you are there to make the thing go quickly and at the moment ducati won this year's constructors championship they achieved what they were employed to do. You have to take yourself, ourselves, 180 degrees to the other side of the fence and be in the engineer's shoes. You've been in a team, Simon. I've been in a team. I'm currently in a team in another form of motorsport. You don't care how you do it. You want to win the bloody race. And if it means sticking on a Stegosaurus because it, in the tunnel, and we'll never know those figures, of course, in the tunnel, it shows that it gives you X on a corner, X on deceleration, whatever it may be over a lap, and it gives you a tenth of a second, bolt it on. Just bolt it on because there's a hole in the rules that enables you to put some aero on that particular place. You know, uh, NASCAR have it, Formula One have it, to a certain degree, MotoGP have it. You can't put aero here, here, and here. But of course, ironically, the, the box is still quite open where the aero around the front of the bike, the leading edge of the fairing just on the side of the, the radiator intake and such like is quite open for for that arrow to be stuck out in a long chat with tom o'kane at suzuki soon to be yamaha next year he says the braking distances have collapsed in the last couple of years they are so much shorter and that is partly to aero partly to braking um technology with the discs with the calipers with the pads with the carbon discs with the size of them and such like and that of course likewise puts more pressure on the michelin front it heats it up it agitates the tire walls it gets it excited it heats it and then all of a sudden they're pinging like a pee on a drum and that is one of the things that quattararo couldn't get on with with a wet tire admittedly at um at Bururam. so uh yeah you've got to look at it from an engineer's point of view as well which is well i'm there to make the bike go fast don't care what it bloody looks like <laughs> and that's the dilemma between us the artists and then the engineers <laughs> and and therein fundamentally lies the problem with motor gp right now in that we have a rule book that's written by the engineers and much like riders are not the only advocates for safety engineers should not be the only advocates for what goes into the engineering of a MotoGP bike because at the end of the day the purpose of MotoGP as a whole isn't to go as fast as possible it's to deliver good entertainment but we've got this system where the the rules can only be amended by a unanimous vote of the motorcycle sports manufacturers association it can't be changed until the end of 2026 when the current agreements between the teams and the factories and Dorna run out, um, I would be very, very surprised if there's not some very, very substantial modifications made to the rulebook at the end of 2026. Not that change, you know, we're not talking hybrid technology or batteries. We're not even talking 990s as opposed to 1000cc engines. We are specifically talking aerodynamics at that point. I think we will see a, a big rewriting of the rulebook at that point. I think I think potentially the the ideal way to go about it in light of all that would be some sort of working group of specialists that aren't really attached for anybody trying to come up with a way. I mean, the way I would go would be spec aero of sorts, spec aero that's you know aimed at both producing stability and yet also minimizing the wake and you know the problems. But also you would, for that to have any meaning, you would have to get, I think, a priori sign up from all the manufacturers that like whatever the group finds and whatever it says we should do, that's what we're doing. Uh, and that's, I guess that's fantasy land for them. But that's that's how I would, that's how I would like to see it. And yeah, you know, if, if, if Aero helps riders be safer, if that's their general feeling, and it's it's sort of been hard to tell depending on who rides for whom, but... I think they're at least they're a lot more on board with the arrow than the devices, a lot more on board. And if the arrow helps them be safer, then you know, come up with some spec arrow that minimizes the the wake impact. I'd be okay with that. Mm. You know, uh, purpose of exercise: make bike go round in circle as fast as possible. So if it is a, a, a squat suspension, a launch device, arrow, then that's what they've got to do. Thing about wings is, it's a it's a 
No jokes, please. It's a cascading thing from cars, isn't it? They were put onto Formula One cars, they were put onto to, to, to rally cars, touring cars, and then you could buy them to drive on the road with a wing on it. Oh, that's cool. Oh, it must go fast because it's got a wing on it. And then it's cascaded down into bikes, and you can go out and buy a Panigale Ducati V4, and it's got wings on it, and it is a hell of a thing to look at. It is a it is a complete device, and then they take a Panigale V4 Super Duper, and they take it to Hareth, and they put a Pro Rider on it with road legal tyres, my lud. Technically, they might be very expensive, but road legal tyres, and it goes. Help me out, Simon. Doesn't it go like three seconds off the back of a, a Grand Prix? Yeah. You cannot do that with a car. You cannot get within three seconds of a Lewis Hamilton, a Max Verstappen, a George Russell, whoever. In, 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 you, not even the WEC LMP1 Le Mans cars could get within three seconds of a Formula 1 car around Silverstone or Spara. Are, are you challenging me? Well, unless it was a 919 Porsche Evo, but that was a out-of-regulatory car. Hell of a thing, though. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's it, it is a cascading thing down, and somebody somewhere has got to try and restrict it. Just as Formula One did, they had a working group. You touched on it. They had a working group. They came up with these different wings for 2022, different car. Pat Simmons and such like. They headed a, a working group, and it seems to have worked. Um, it seems to have worked in Formula One, yeah, but that's yes. not the work of a moment. And as you touched on, Simon, with the rule book being essentially written by engineers, you've got to get them to come over to the show side of things, and that's not going to be an easy thing. But Formula One managed to do it. So if they can do it, we can do it. I So bear with me, because I've fleshed this out while we've been talking. There was no prior planning went into this mad theory that I'm about to deliver to you. But... There is one solution to this problem that Dorna could, in theory, work right away to implement for the near future. That They're struggling to find enough track time to test the new 2023 tyre, right? The new 2024 tyre uh, that's now potentially being pushed to 2025 because there's like 12 days of testing between now and the start of the 2025 season. That's how compressed we've got. Mm -hmm. So there's an easy solution. You go to Suzuki, who are leaving this championship, despite having a deal. You say to them, we'll take your bikes and all of the spare parts you've got for them. You hire like the six people it would take to run a bike for a season. You stick someone like Sylvain Gantoli on it. You say you can't score championship points. The bike will be in Michelin colors and you use it for the rest of for the entire of next season to test that front tire. You put someone on track every weekend just to develop a tire because it has to come sooner rather than later. Good idea. Good idea. Could be a runner. Uh, Suzuki could earn money out of it because they might run out of spare parts as well. But so yeah, it that 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 does work. Yeah. Uh, Bridgestone did it with Jurgen van der Gerberg. Bridgestone did it with Shinichi Ito. They before they came into into MotoGP oh, 20 years ago now. Um, of Kanemoto ran the bike. They uh, help me out, Val. Formula One before they went over to the new smaller profile Pirelli tire. They had tire tests with the teams on a Monday after a race, and they they kind of gave everybody a chance to to have a go with them. Yeah, no, that, that happened. There were there were team specific tire tests. There was also a Pirelli mule car uh, based off an, a Lotus from a previous season or previous two seasons ran by Jaime Gersuari, I believe. It didn't run in races, but it you know just did a testing program, which honestly, uh, what Simon's proposing, because you want to, I guess you want to study the wake example in specific. So you'd, you'd like him to run in, in races, maybe just European yeah. only then to yeah, yeah, exactly. minimize the spend. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I mean, is this a simpler idea? Not that any of us have got the magic bullet, but why not just have more days of testing, but you can only test the new tires? Because teams won't do it. Because teams will not do it. They'll say, oh, yeah, well, we're Well, they're their own testing. worst enemy then. Yeah, of course they are. But that, but it goes, goes, goes back to the fundamental issue we had at the start, Toby, about uh, the engineers want to go faster. Well, if they don't go testing with the new tire and they sit in the hotel and they have a nice long lunch, then they're going to miss out on the development direction of the oh, new tire. they'll be on track. No, no, they'll be on track with the new tire. 
but they won't be testing the new tire. They'll be testing electronic strategies. There'll be new swing arms. It yeah. won't be used for tire testing. And I know that because when Michelin bring a new tire to a test right now, no one tries it. Well, and then they all complain about it when it arrives. Of course they are. I'm sorry. Of course they I'm are. Sorry. That's, I, you know, I don't like to be outspoken, yeah. but they're stupid. If you've got the yeah. opportunity to to change the technical direction of a control product, and if you say that they don't put their heart and soul in it, then I'm flabbergasted to learn that. That that is, that's what we <laughs> wow. see. That's what we see. Michelin tell us we're bringing a new tire to a Monday test. We speak to riders afterwards. How was the new tire? Ah, oh, yeah, we, we only used it for one exit or we used it, but we were doing some electronic strategy work at the time or, you know, we ran out of time. It, it happened at Misano. F1 dealt with that by giving control over the track program to, to the tire manufacturer. That's, that's how that works. You, you show up and then Pirelli runs your car the way it wants. Well, like you, you run your car, but Pirelli tells you what to do with it. Yeah. Pirelli tells you what settings to mess about with. And then you learn as much as you can in the constraints of that, but you do the running, Pirelli tells you, you do not test new parts, you do not, you know. So then the other option, uh, if we don't go with the Suzuki thing, is every manufacturer is told they have to do a wildcard, a certain number of wildcards, and the crew chief at those wildcards works for Pirelli, or for Michelin. Yeah, yeah, I don't mind that. You know, every writer has a factory test writer. Yeah. You know, there's... There is ways that this could be sped up. And, and to be fair, that would be a slightly better process because then you're testing out in every bike. You know, 10 European races, 10 European wildcards, every manufacturer has to do two. There's another solution. It might be 15 years ago, but Michelin could make a MotoGP race tyre overnight. Yeah. And what you've touched on today, Simon, is that they might not be able to make a new tyre until 2020. I've run out of fingers. Five. Two seasons. If our listeners could see my face. <laughs> I keep saying it to people in my other walks of my life. I come, we all come from a prototype world. When something's broken, you just fix it. Let's see how that one shakes out. But 2025, I, that seems a long time ago. Away, away. Seems a very long time away. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. We've had some voice questions from you guys listening from all over the world. We've got five of them to run here right now. The first of which is Ryan from London. G'day, folks. Ryan here, an Aussie in London. I have been a fan of the show for a couple of years. I've been a MotoGP fan for probably 20 years and a rider for about 15 years. I've had a, all sorts of bikes, from sports bikes to more street-oriented, nowadays a super naked, uh, and also a VFR 400 race bike I had for a couple of years and did some track days on at Eastern Creek and the glorious Phillip Island. What a place. And my question to you is, do you ride? And it occurred to me when it was asked on another podcast, and the answer was no. And I thought, that's quite interesting because... As a rider, you, when watching the MotoGP races at work, whether it's free practice, qualifying, or in, even in the race, you can get a lot out of it. You can really relate to what they are doing when you see the tires squirming in certain ways, the suspension working in certain ways, how they're positioning their bodies uh, differently, especially between different sessions, um, the different body language. And of course, I'd never be able to replicate anything that they do, but I can to some extent, understand it and, and relate to it a little bit. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's the main question, really. Um, do you ride? And if not, uh, how are you looking at all those tiny little details? And if I have a second question or request even to you guys, let's give the Moto3 and Moto2 a bit more airtime. I watch them every weekend, the races at least. And, um, you know, it's the grassroots of the sport. And I think they deserve a bit more airtime. 
Thanks. I love the show. Keep it up. Cheers. Thank you, Ryan, as you say, from London, but not quite from London, we jest. Um, I did ride a lot. I did ride a lot. I got my job in the Grand Prix motorcycle paddock. I was 23 years old. I didn't have a bike license, but I made sure that I did have a bike license quite quickly so that I could do exactly what you're talking about, which is at least try and understand at a slower speed, admittedly of what the guys I was watching every couple of weeks were were going through. Uh, I had some quick bikes. I did all sorts of silly things on the road, did lots of track days. Now, that's when you really learn about what to do. I had some tuition. Neil Hodgson gave me some great tuition at Silverstone. I was on a 1098 Ducati or something or other. And, of course, he's doing his gloves up on the way into cops, and I'm vaguely... Oh dear, you know, it's just a, an example of how there is so much difference between a pro and an amateur. Uh, I'd be the middle group on a track day. Um, great fun. I've been on the Ducati two-seater. I've been on the Yamaha 500cc two-stroke two-seater. Been on the back of Cal on an R1 around Silverstone. I think you have Simon as well. That's an experience. Um, I've competed in cars, hill climbs. I've been successful on an amateur level, held some class records. So I've got a little bit of an idea, but um, I don't ride on the road anymore. I've got a family. Um, I've had a few close shaves. And as Gerhard Berger used to say, every time you have a crash, you write a check. One days there is no more money in the bank. Well, I don't even want to write my first check. So I I didn't ride again until I started working in, in motorbike racing. Um, although for me, it was when I was at British Superbikes with uh, Motorcycle News. But again, quickly learned after that, quickly got my license. Um, my license is, my riding, I find is, is largely irrelevant to my job in that I will never be fast enough to fully comprehend to be able to fully translate what I see on track to what I see and, and through the visor when I'm on a bike. Um, but I'm lucky that uh, I'm surrounded by some super, super, super smart people who are very, very good at explaining what we are seeing. And I generally get them to translate for me at a much slower pace and find that that helps more than anything. Um, at one of the, one of the single most important uh, things I've ever done professionally. I walked a, a lap of the service road at Hareth one day during a World Superbike test with Bradley Smith. And it was just the most enlightening thing because you're watching guys go past lap after lap after lap and he's telling you every lap what they're doing. So things like that are far more helpful for me than road riding. Um, in terms of, of actually getting on a bike, my lifestyle of being in MotoGP doesn't leave an awful lot of time for it because... The only time that I'm ever in the same place for, for any extended length of time is in Ireland in November, December and January, which is not when you want to be on a motorbike. Um, so what I tend to do is to get in sort of short, sharp bursts of motorbike riding like uh, like last year, um, whenever we had three weeks, sort of a, a week and a half each side of Circuit of the Americas, I flew to LA, I borrowed a Harley, I rode seven and a half thousand kilometers across America and that was my bike fix for the year. Um, until the next time, because yeah, like I say, you you just don't want to be on a motorbike in Ireland in December, do you? <laughs> Not really, no. <laughs> I'm from a place with without much of a a bike culture to speak for, speak of. So my my entire extent of being on a on a motorcycle, my entire experience is being in the Thailand MotoGP race and finding out that the lo- much of the local taxis is in fact bikes and just getting rides from them, which honestly ruled absolutely phenomenal stuff. But yeah, no, you're, you are right. And it's, it's, it's something that definitely honestly crosses my mind on basically a every weekend's basis. And it's obviously, even if I were a regular road rider, I would not feel anywhere near the same sensations they do, but it is, it is a certain limitation and uncertainty in your head that you can't, you can't replicate what they feel. You can't fully understand the mechanics of what, of what they do. And sometimes it's, it's a, it's, it's a part that you sort of check in your head or that, you know, you're like, you, you have to know that you're not, you're not fully sure. You have to be like, this is, this is my understanding of it, but I, I have to know that, you know, there's a, there's a potential blind spot there, which is also why you, you, you basically mostly see me as a numbers data guy looking into, looking into pace, looking into 
again, it's, it's just a weird personal quirk. I I watch bikes on track and I watch bikes on on the TV screens, but honestly, I, I like the timing page more. It I, I seem to I seem to feel it gives me more of an idea on what's happening. One thing I do have to add. Um, just to give myself back a little bit of credibility is that I've never raced a motorbike or really rode much on track, but I have managed to have a racing crash after doing five laps of Maori Park on the back of sidecar world champion Tim Reeves' sidecar outfit and getting uh, arm pumps so severely that my arm stopped working as he jettisoned me off the side of the sidecar through a 90 mile an hour corner. So I've been through a gravel trap um, on a race circuit, which has to count for something, right? <laughs> Um, just coming back to your question, Ryan, you know, it's not all about what is on the racetrack uh, with the actual riding skill of the, of the riders. It's about the analysis and it's that mental approach of each rider. Have they put their Instagram account on pause for a couple of weeks? What are they like when they take the helmet off in the garage when the doors are closed? How do they approach the racing? Do they go out on a Sunday night and have a blowout with a load of beers and friends? Or do they have a cup of coffee and a tea and they tuck themselves up in bed? That's what the journalists analyze quite well. And also, you know, when when you've been in the game a bit, you can refer back and go, that happened in 2001. And it didn't work, or that happened in 2000, but it did work. So that's maybe the strength of what the journalists try, at least, to do. The, the other thing is, I think that as a collective body, the journalists cover all approaches. Um, I think, you know, I cover personalities. I think you do to a certain extent, Toby. You've also got a lot of history. Val does data and numbers. We have Needle Spalding come on occasionally to discuss tech. You have people, especially on TV, like Simon Crafer or Michael Laverty, who understand riding and racing. So as a collective whole, I think that, you know, no one person is going to do all. So I think as, as a combined effort, we, we get there. And, and just to touch very briefly on your other point about covering Moto2 and Moto3, um, I watch every second of them as well. Trust me, it's not just you. And I really wish we could have, uh, I really wish we could give them a bit more time. But as we creep up to like the 48 minute mark on this week's podcast, on a weekly podcast, I just don't have hours in the day to do another podcast on Moto2 yeah. and Moto3 as well. That's the sad reality of it. And, it, and it, honestly, it's not something you can sneak by the editors. Like, they're going to look at us go like, you, you spoke for two hours about Moto2 and Moto3. Who is this for? Like, yeah, there's going to be some people who are into it, but not enough for us to, you know, spend our time editing it all together. So, you know, it's supply demand, but we pay attention and we'll, tr trust me, you'll see in the, in the off-season definitely discussions. And, yeah, and, and there's always Moto2 and Moto3 stories popping up on the site. Yeah. from certain angles there you go next up hey guys this is dean and this is rachel first, first time long time we're calling from harlem in new york city and our question for you since my guy maverick is on a precipice of making history we're wondering are there other bikes on the grid that you think he could win on and are there other riders out there who could pull off something similar Thanks, guys. Take it easy. Hi, Dean and Rachel. Um, that that question must have been. There must be a screenplay for it. Like line here, Dean. Line here, Rachel. Together. <laughs> <laughs> there's more organizations went into asking that question than there's going to go into answering it. <laughs> yeah. No. Nah, it would be it would be coherent. We can't have that. Um, I think we're fairly confident he can win on the Aprilia, um, and Ducati. I think is a no-brainer. He definitely went on that. If, if they put him on that, the current Honda and KTM, I have, I have some questions over. Oh, Honda, just the current level is not so good. Uh, KTM, he maybe wouldn't get the time. But yeah, no, you know, Maverick is uh, like the, the underlying talent there is not in question. You, you get him on his day of days on any bike. I mean, he's, he's super. So yeah, I, I think Ducati is a clear answer for you there. Um, is there anybody else on the grid who can do that? Uh, Mark would win on any piece of garbage you put him on i think he'd probably win in a motor two bike yeah he's ab absolutely mark on any of them <laughs> uh, on on rain tires on a on a dry track uh, is, the others i mean mark is such an obvious answer that I'm, I'm really struggling for for any other name because it's just it's a question where you like it mark yeah i i think 
if the bike improves a little bit, the next person to switch manufacturer and win another win a race in a second manufacturer will be Juan Mir. You'd hope um, so. I think the Honda. I, I think the Honda plays very very well to his style, and out of sort of the guys moving next year, that's that's probably the most likely contender for me. Can't say more about Maverick. You're absolutely right. Um, I don't think he'll ever win a title in any bike because it is all about him on his day. But he could absolutely win, you know, on multiple machines, races. Hi guys, Paul from Buckinghamshire in the UK here. Um, question for you: At the Japanese GP in Mategi, when Aleish had those issues with his bike and uh, he came in and, and switched onto his spare. Um, I noticed, and, and it's something Toby mentioned on Twitter as well, that the spare bike didn't have the sweat band over the brake master cylinder. And it's something I've always wondered, what's the purpose of that sweat band? Is it uh, advertising space or, or does it serve a useful purpose? Thanks. Paul, it does absolutely serve a useful purpose if the screw cap on top of the reservoir vibrates itself loose. Now, the thread on that screw cap is quite fine, um, and they can tighten it up as much as they can, but ultimately it is two different pieces of plastic screwed together. The, the, the violence, the vibration, the stuff that's going on, the energy that's going on on a MotoGP bike is immense. And if it does unscrew itself, then the brake fluid... Uh, clutch fluid will will start the clutch fluid should I say will start to leak out. That's evil stuff. That's evil stuff, and it gets in the way and it attacks stuff and So it's just a bit of a fail safe. If the screw top starts to come undone, then the fluid will be captured by the sweatband. Now the sweatband of all sweatbands of all golden hierarchical sweatbands are HRC. Because they've got a little HRC logo embroidered into them. Not just, a, not just a blue one, not just an orange one, not just with Repsol car. HRC. And they have been the holy grail of stuff to get from a friendly HRC mechanic since Jesus was a carpenter. It is the thing to go. Johnny Eyre, who used to work at HRC and now works at KTM, good friend of this podcast, he said, if I had a friend come and ask me to, to, to get one of those little HRC sweatband things, uh, if I had a quid for every person who asked me, I'd be a millionaire and I wouldn't need to go to work. But uh, they're cool things, aren't they? But I think what happened in Mategi was that there was a bit of a thrash to get the bike ready for what was probably not going to be a stop-go race, you know, a flag-to-flag -flag race. So arguably, did they kind of half-heartedly, I'm going to whisper this, half-heartedly get the bike ready? Because it wasn't technically ready and then the fluid could have leaked out and played merry hell with the spare part, with the parts underneath. I think what probably happened there was, uh, I think they changed clutches for wet and dry. And it's possible that they were in the process of changing the bike from a dry setup as a spare bike for the grid to a wet bike in case it was a flag to flag. And maybe they were like halfway through that swap process, which would have involved topping up clutch fluid. Um, and it was just, you know, it's it's in the list of things that you have to do to switch a bike from a dry set into a wet setting. That's like second from bottom. It's way down the list. Um, I Funny story, uh, a few years ago, I don't know if you remember, uh, a Marshall nicked a sweatband from someone's bike after while they were holding it in a slowing down lap. Yeah. And it was caught on the bike's onboard camera. Uh, well, quite funnily, um, after that, Brembo turned up in the media centre and went to like the, the 10 journalists that go to most races and gave us one each uh, as, a, as a little reminder of the Marshall that stole one. Which, so I have a Brembo one at home somewhere. They're cool little things. Full factory, aren't they? Full factory. Oh, yeah. Okay, we go from Buckinghamshire in the UK to Essex. Hi, guys. This is Jack from Essex in England. Uh, love the content you make and thank you for that I have uh, two quick questions I'd love to hear you discuss first being um, Alex Marquez to Crescini Ducati next year is this the beginning of uh, Ducati's courtship of Mark Marquez and secondly the controversial sprint format next year do you think this would favour some riders more than others I personally think that Miller will uh, flourish in this environment and uh, potentially could very much mix the championship up for this reason. Thank you very much. Bye. Hi, Jack. So, yeah, I think 
Regarding Alex Marquez, I think it might be the first step towards trying to, to court Mark. Yeah, but it's it's not going to be the the deciding factor. But it's what is absolutely clear and is that Alex and Mark, who are very very clearly very very close, they live together, they train together, they chat all the time. Um, what is clear is that they will be discussing the the situation at home, and Mark will be getting input from Alex. And when this was put to Mark, I think a few months ago, when the, the Alex move was first announced and Mark returned to the paddock, he he said that, you know, obviously we have a very tight relationship. We talk to each other, but we're, we're going to have secrets from each other. I'm not going to be telling him about some Honda plans. He's not going to be telling me about some Ducati plans. And I think what he's trying to say there is there's not going to be industrial espionage in that obviously there's not going to be previews of the upgrades. I think that much is clear. I don't think anybody benefits anything from any of that. But as to whether Mark Marquez will get a good idea of the inner workings of Ducati and how it is, you know, how the the technical staff works there, just, you know, the atmosphere, all of those, you know, small intangibles, how much you're listened to, uh, how high-tech everything is and all that, all that stuff that you get from from being embedded, all of that info he will get. And... It's not like it's not going to be the deciding factor because ultimately the deciding factor is going to be whether the Honda bike gets better. Because if it doesn't, Mark Marquez doesn't need to hear from Alex that he can win on the Ducati. He knows that. We all know that. There's no no secret here. We we all we all know that Mark Marquez can win the championship and a bunch of races on the Ducati if he so chooses to go there for 2025. Um, but yeah, it's you know it. I'm I'm sure there will be extra info and I'm. You know, that kind of sort of one foot, one indirect foot in the door, that always, it helps a little bit. I think it will help Ducati's chances a little bit if Ducati elects to seriously pursue Mark, which we we don't know. Maybe not, but if they do, yeah. I think that that is a big, that is something that Ducati are going to take as a, a bonus. But I my gut feeling is that this is a deal that was penned by Grissini because they wanted a guy who can maybe win a race or two a season to replace Enea Bastianini. And Alex Marquez has never really got the chance he deserves to shine in MotoGP because he's always been on a pretty crappy Honda. Um, the guy is a double world champion. If his surname was anything but Marquez, people would be saying, yeah, he deserves this chance. He deserves this chance in his own merit. Um, and... I, I think, I I believe I've said it from the start that on his day, he'll go really well on that bike because on their day, it seems at the minute that pretty much every Ducati rider can go well and stick the bike in the podium. And, you know, Grissini are a third tier satellite team with sponsors to appease and all they want is two or three podium finishes and maybe a win a season to keep the, the guys that bring the money happy. Um, and Alex Marquez is capable of doing that. So for, from strictly a team perspective, it's a smart sign-in for them. But then for the, you know, the, the bonus for Ducati is that Mark Marquez gets to see how they operate. Um, as for the sprint question, um, I think, yeah, Miller, yeah. Miller's a really good shout. I think, I think many of us expect Ducati to absolutely monster those sprint races and just leave everyone in the dust. I think that's part of it. Um, the only other names that really come to my mind are Marquez, obviously. Yeah, even, especially considering the potential fitness question mark, whether it always just remains this way that he doesn't quite have the longevity of his direct rivals. You know, it'll still, Mark can absolutely run 10 laps in front, whatever the bike and whatever the condition. Uh, yeah, Mark's one. I think Alex Rins maybe is the second because we've seen quite a few really good charges from Rins in opening laps. I think he's. I think Mir is more of a longevity rider at Honda and Rins, uh, at Suzuki, and Rins is more more of a burst rider. So yeah, so yeah, those those would be my answers: Ducati, Marquez, Rins. I'd say for those sprint races, Mark Marquez. All bets are off. Aggressive on the first lap, half a distance race, elbows out. Outsikes them on the grid. It's Mark to a T, isn't it? Similarly, there'll be people who are punished by the sprint race format. Uh, people like like Brad Bender, people like Anaya Bastianini, they're, they're not going to perform as well in sprint races because they're guys mm. that kind of take time to build up ahead of steam and go backwards uh, or go forwards. They, they need the second half of the race. They need the, the second half. half of the race, exactly. Um, so so it, will, it won't be the normal MotoGP finishing order both because it'll suit some people's styles and it'll really disadvantage others. Hope it doesn't lead to some optimistic passing 
manoeuvres and then visits to the steward's room on a Saturday evening. Okay, right, we've got our last question. Hi guys, this is Morten from Denmark. Uh, let me start by thanking you for an informative and fun podcast. I live it, listen every week. Uh, I have a couple of questions regarding the Moto E series. Um, first of all, I'd like your take on what you think it'll mean for the series that Ducati is taking over from next year. Um, being the sole supplier of machines, will that change the series? Will it attract other rider profiles? Uh, will it give better or worse racing? What, what is your take on that? And my second question is, um, what you see for the future of Motor E? Most uh, manufacturers are working on electric street motorcycles now. Um, will we see electric motorcycles in Motor GP? Or will it be biofuels only, or even a third possibility? Appreciate your thoughts on that too. Thank you very much, and keep up the good work. Hey, Martin. Thank you for your question. Um, so let's start with Ducati coming on board. Uh, I think there will be, first of all, we're, we're going to see Murui get faster um, because we're going from essentially a, a heavy production bike with technology that's now five years old to an absolutely bang up to date prototype machine. Uh, you know, it's the first time that Moto E has been a prototype bike and that in itself is going to make it faster. Um, it's going to be faster. It's going to be more powerful. It's going to be much lighter. We're, we're going to see an advantage there. Um, I say advantage because I don't think it's going to necessarily change the series because the series is really competitive at the minute it's really good race and it's really entertaining and, and that kind of leads into the second bigger impact that i think ducati are going to make um moto e has kind of been the stepchild that moto gp never wanted they they launched the series so that no one else could the way that formula e escaped the f1 paddock um and it never got the love it deserved and i know that in the the final sort of the final stages, the last year and a half or so, that's something that uh, one make manufacturer, Energica, has been quite vocal about both internally and actually to the media as well. They felt like they've not been given their what they deserve. Um, and that's evidenced in the fact that a lot of the sessions aren't even televised. It's really hard to find the races on TV in a lot of countries. Um, it's not been well sold. But now that we're adding the, the might of the Ducati marketing empire to that and the fact that Ducati carry an awful lot of weight within the MotoGP paddock because they supply a third of the bikes on the MotoGP grid, we're going to see that, that dynamic change and hopefully it pushes what is a great series to a wider audience. Um, regarding the bigger picture in the longer term, we're, we're never going to see MotoGP we're not going to see MotoGP go electric in the medium term, at least, I think. Um, simply because that's not really the way that electric vehicles as a whole are going. Whenever you look at, at motorbikes, um, even if it is the way the cars are kind of going with some hybrid technology, uh, electric motorbikes are by and large being developed for city use. They're not being developed for highway use. They're definitely not being developed for circuit use. Uh, and I think that we're going to see kind of a, a split in the way that bikes are manufactured going forwards and in creating like a sort of parallel streams of development where sure, absolutely things like your Piaggio scooter or your Honda Grand monkey bike will be electric because you're using them for batting around town and they make perfect sense. But no one's going to make a, an electric BMW GS anytime soon. Uh, and while that, ex you know, while that happens, we're still going to see, uh, we're still going to see internal combustion motor gp machines too sustainable fuel is a thing sustainable fuel yeah. wins in 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 four-wheeled sport at least uh it won three stages of the dakar last year and it finished second and fourth on the dakar last year with sustainable fuel what is sustainable fuel it is harnessing agricultural waste and the co2 from that agricultural waste to turn it into a fuel to then burn in an engine and then the emissions then are reduced by 80% at the exhaust pipe. That could easily be 100% uh, non-fossil fuel usage to, to move the same vehicle at the same speed over the same distance. Formula One will be on a bio slash sustainable fuel in 2026 
Uh, there's been sustainable fuel running at Le Mans, all sorts of other sustainable fuel running on the Dakar. Uh, there was sustainable fuel running with an Aramco blend at the Goodwood historic motorsport revival meeting in the middle of September. So with little adaptation to existing uh, petrol engines, you can run a sustainable fuel. Here and now, arguably, I think that's the, that's the solution uh, on a longer term basis. MotoGP are actually going to step beyond that for from 2027, and we're not we're we're skipping the synthetic or the the sustainable fuel step, and we're going directly to 100% synthetic fuel from 2027, which uses renewable electricity generated by wind power to turn seawater into hydrocarbons, which then burn just like petrol. Um, so there are you know we're we're not digging up dinosaurs. We're not. Um, we're not creating CO2 until basically you put the fuel into the engine. Uh, and I think all these schemes have, have sort of carbon capture systems built into them. I know that Porsche are developing a massive like 150 million pound plant in like southern Chile. Yeah. Chile, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it's been Whether running for, for a couple this. of years now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's also quite interestingly for MotoGP, there's also a, a similar project being run in Qatar by the Qatari government. Um, so that that will be the MotoGP future for, well, we're we're not going to go electric whenever the rules are revised for twenty twenty seven. I can't see us going electric when the rules are revised again five years after that. So uh, I think it's safe to say that we're internal combustion until at least twenty thirty seven. And just as a slight aside for our listeners, um, I met up with a guy who is a specialist in electric trick distribution around the uk how it's going to get to houses and such like but one of the things he touched on is that apparently the british government at least is going to change and relax the licensing requirements for people to be able and the age at which they are able to ride an electric scooter mobility device within the confines of a town to stop them, to get them out of cars, to get them mobile off buses, arguably, because the buses, in theory, should be full. University uh, campuses and such like, um, people going to sixth form schools or even under the age of 17, because 17 is the age you can drive a car in the UK, 16 for a moped. But if that is brought down a bit and those rules are relaxed, and apparently in UK government, there's going to be an announcement soon about that. Uh, not sending people 100 miles up the motorway, but more like three kilometers around town. So that, in my eyes, is what electric mobility is about. But that's another um, Pandora's box of discussion that uh, is for another day. And I'm sure many of you tech heads have heard them from other people. In the meantime, thank you for sending in your voice notes. If you do want to ask us a question, send them to podcasts at the-race.com. Uh, get them into us. Uh, keep in touch with the-race.com with our website for all of your Formula One and more importantly, MotoGP news because we've got three races to go and a MotoGP championship to thrash out. Who will it be? Quattararo, Banyaya, or even that glimmer of a hope for Aspargaro? Let's find out after Phillip Island when all three of us will speak to you then. Goodbye for now. The Athletic.